Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. And that email address is listed below in the description section here, as well as links to the Great Courses Plus site, which I promote on this channel and will continue to do so through 2020. Uh, and also links to my merch site, uh, Critical Merchandise, which you can also take advantage of for the holiday season or otherwise to spread the joy and happiness of critical thinking and some humorous stuff about Scientology as well. And links to my book on Amazon, Scientology, A to Zenu, an insider's guide to what Scientology is really all about. And uh, let's see, any other links? Oh, I don't know, there's probably some other fun links down there too. Oh yes, of course, unless you wanted to, in case you wanted to uh, donate to the channel. Okay, so that all being said, it is Christmas. And in the spirit of The Rise of Skywalker, a movie I am not particularly pleased with, but it is out this week. And Christmas, I am dressed for the occasion. I also have, uh, coming up this week, if all goes well, it has already been shot, it's in the can, I just need to put it together, but I have a bonus episode uh, of the Sensibly Speaking podcast for you guys that I will be putting out midweek uh, as a little Christmas present for you guys, and I hope you enjoy what uh, Seth Andrews and I had to talk about uh, for our ideas and plans for where we've been and where we're going in the new year. All right, so let's see. Any other plugs or anything I need to put in? I don't think so. I think we're ready to go. Let's get to your questions. Kevin Zay, is it normal for coworkers who are also members of groups like Scientology or Jehovah's Witnesses to think they are better than you or have a big persecution complex? I've dealt with coworkers from both groups. A few have been fired for various reasons out of my control. One I saw outside of work and they tried to blame me for being let go. Another one actually sent a letter to me through the company blaming me for their firing and calling me a racist, bigoted Nazi. Okay, so this is a great example of the us versus them mentality that I'm constantly harping on and the black and white thinking that get that cult members tend to drift towards or embrace as a way of looking at the world. One of the things about being a member of a destructive cult is that the worldview of a cult member is a very simple one. And that is something that, of course, the cult leader wants the person to be thinking. Uh, they don't want people with nuanced thinking. They don't want people who are really, you know, able to put everything together at every level and that sort of thing. What they want is they want people who are going to pare it back, what the cult leader is saying, what the cult leader intends, and are going to just accept it. And that this is truth, this is ultimate truth, this is the most important truth there is, that is, that is a very, very inherent part of the sacred knowledge and, and secret lore that cult members or cult leaders uh, pass on, and they embrace this knowledge and they take it as though it is, well, gospel. So, and this is not just in a religious sense, this is also in non-religious cults. Same drill, right? So what you see then is a person who has a whole part of their life that to them is raised on a dais. It's, 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 it's more important. It is of senior uh, validity, again, truth, and uh, therefore of senior importance to them. And everything they see in their life filters through this. 
that, you know, a destructive cult is not a part-time activity. Being a cult member is not a part-time thing that you do. Not when you really embraced it and you're really all in. And to a degree, I could even say there are Scientologists who call themselves Scientologists who are barely cult members because they're barely attending Scientology and they barely give it any credence or importance. On the other hand, there are most Scientologists who go all in on it, right? And same with Jehovah's Witnesses. They demand absolute loyalty and absolute commitment and dedication. And they demand that this belief system or this set of ideas trump everything else in the person's life. So, of course, this is going to affect their professional uh, relationships and their ability to do, even do their job uh, because of the filtering, right? Because of all the biases and, and things that are set up and, the, and the, because of the way they look at other people and the way they interact with them. And the thing about cult members, uh, when you interact with them socially or whatever, is that they tend to not have a very good ability to put filters in place on that stuff. They, they say inappropriate things, or they're certainly thinking inappropriate things uh, about you, about other people around them. Like Scientologists, for example, they actually think in words to themselves when they look around at other people in the office, let's say it's a coworker, they look around at other people there with the idea that all these people are more ignorant, stupid, uninformed, uh, aberrated, that's the word that they use in Scientology, for unable to think clearly or rationally. And this is all summed up by this word wog, which is, an, you know, I understand it's a racial epithet, but that's not how I'm using it. I'm using it in the Scientology sense. And in that sense, it's a, it's a slur, but it's not a racial slur. It's a slur against everybody who is not a Scientologist. And this is the kind of language, this us versus them language that develops. It, you see it in politics with the MAGAs and the libtards and the, I mean, you see it all over the place. This language is not exclusive to religions or cults. Um, but when you see it being used in this extreme way, then you start thinking, mm, something culty going on there. And you'd be right, because language is very, very powerful and is used for exactly for that purpose of thought reform. So, um, so yeah, they do think they're better than everybody else around them who are not part of their in-group. They have been carefully indoctrinated to think that. It's not an accident. And it's not even something you'd want to put on them completely, at least. I mean, sure, but, you know, a person is responsible for how they think and act, but, uh, but when you're, but, but, you know, when you are at the receiving end of coercive persuasion, when you're at the receiving end of coercive control, then it's not all on you, you know, and, and you're dealing with people who have been grossly and repeatedly lied to and have been worked over very, very hard to get them into this in-group mentality, which I'm sure you get. So anyway, so that's the deal with that. Yes, they do think they're better than you, without question. They absolutely think that. Every single cult member does. That's a defining characteristic of being a cult member, is that you fall out of parity or affinity with the rest of the people around you. You know, and this is one of the things that drives people crazy about cult members, by the way, is that the, you can't help but get that sort of flow from them, for lack of better terminology right now, right? When they're talking to you, you get this sort of arrogance or this condescension or conceit. 
and it's bad. And, and, and the deeper they go in, the more, you know, that is there. Um, but the more successful they are in life, the better able they are to hide that condescension or arrogance. But it will come out. And especially in times of stress or trauma, like getting fired from your job, then it's going to come out really hard, right? And they're going to blame you. They're going to blame the boss. They're going to blame the company. They're going to blame everybody but themselves. So there you go. Nick C. Last night, I watched the latest Q&A on YouTube, and it was preceded by an ad from Scientology. I got distracted watching the episode, so I decided to watch it for the second time, and the same Scientology ad came before it. What do you think is going on? And more importantly, how do you feel about it? <laughs> okay, ads, Scientology ads. People comment on this all the time on my channel. I saw a Scientology ad before the video, and I've always laughed at it. I always thought it was just kind of funny because Scientology money, of course, is going to Google to pay them for an ad campaign, and you know, and then their ads appear on my videos, right? And I'm like, all right. Uh, you know, so it's a waste of Scientology money, and, and that's always kind of a good thing as far as that goes. I mean, at least it's coupling up with something that's immediately debunking it. Um, and I don't know, that's pretty much the only real thought I've put into it. I haven't really done any real deep thinking about this. It happens, by the way, in case you guys are wondering, based on the subject matter of in my title and in my keywords, and Scientology, of course, is all throughout my channel through the keywords, because a lot of my videos have to do with Scientology. And uh, the Google ad algorithms just match up the Scientology ads with my channel for that reason. I'm sure if Scientology had a choice in the matter, they wouldn't be running their ads on my channel. I don't know, maybe they would. They might be stupid enough to do that. But, um, but I think it's really just Google's uh, algorithms, the ad matching algorithms that are doing that. And I think that's uh, I think that's pretty much how that works. And I, you know, I'm fine with people seeing Scientology's commercials in contrast with my work. I don't think it invalidates my work or or puts a hamper on it in any way. If anything, it highlights why I'm doing what I'm doing and the need for it. So there you go. Lauren Sauclair. I've been learning about cults for the last two years. Scientology in the aftermath being what started everything. After watching your amazing interviews with Sarah Landry, but also Wild Wild Country and Holy Hell documentaries on Netflix, I noticed something. In the Nithyananda, Rahashish Param, and Buddha field cults, everyone had a new name attributed to them by the leader to disconnect them from their previous lives, quote-unquote. Without necessarily giving new names to people, does Scientology have a practice that would serve the same purpose, aka creating a new identity to the parishioners? It's not exactly a ceremonial or traditional or sort of ritualistic sort of thing that happens in Scientology where we out with the old, in with the new kind of personality or attitude, but... Um, you do get identity in Scientology through your case level, in other words, the, the levels of indoctrination as you move up the bridge to total freedom. Uh, funny, it's such an irony that you are moving up the bridge to total freedom while you are really, in reality, becoming more and more and more indoctrinated and more and more isolated and insulated into the bubble world of Scientology. But that's 
that's cults for you. So, uh, so yes, there is that happening, and those status levels, as we've referred to them many times, can also be looked at as aspects or or substitutions for the person's identity. And the people definitely take this as part of their identity when they achieve the state of clear, when they achieve OT levels. That's now part of who they are, and they very, very much identify with that to the point where, you know, you were asked in Scientology shortly after being met by another Scientologist, what's your case level? Where are you at on the bridge, right? It's always constantly you're being measured on where you stand on your levels of indoctrination. This also applies in Scientology with levels of donation. This has been something that David Miscavige has worked very hard on for the, probably the last 25 years or so, making status in the International Association of Scientologists commensurate with uh, the same idea, in other words, as case level. In fact, Miscavige, as I've uh, mentioned and I think wrote about in the past, Miscavige has actually equated giving money for nothing, just donating your money to the International Association of Scientologists for whatever they're going to use it for, and there is zero transparency, zero accountability. You give that money over, you have no idea what that money is being used for. They'll tell you this, that, and the other thing, but they're lying to you. They're not telling you where it's really going because the people who are telling you where the money is going, most of the time, they don't even know. But all of that aside, the status that is afforded by the trophies and titles and, and uh, fanfare that connected with donating to the IS have made it, within the bubble world of Scientology, its own kind of identification. I'm a patron of the IS. I'm a patron meritorious of the IS. I'm a patron gloratorious of the IS, right? I'm a silver meritorious, gold meritorious, platinum meritorious. They have titles coming out their ears, like old royalty titles in the French court, you know? These things are fought over and, and desired and wanted, and people play one-upmanship within the world of Scientology to get these titles. So they really do matter in this world, right? You look at it outside and you go, these people are nuts. And to a degree, you're right. They have gone a little nuts over these titles and these identities that they get because it's all about status. And within the social hierarchy of Scientology, case level, training level, and IAS donations are the three things that pretty much establish your identity as a Scientologist. So... You know, so that's kind of how it works there. And of course, the longer you're involved in this, the less your previous, you know, non-cult personality, the less influence that has, the less that is you as you've created this sort of new identity and paradigm for yourself. And that's, that's pretty much how that works. Michael Blau, I'd be interested in your discussion of Model Session the standard pattern of communication that Hubbard devised to provide predictability for the PC, auditor, and case supervisor, and to perform standard checks that ensure auditing sessions start with the PC ready to be audited. In my limited experience as an auditor, I found reads and floating needles difficult to recognize, and I found myself relying more on PC indicators, how the person looks. It was like the PC and the auditor would conspire to get through the session with credible worksheets and an after-session exam report. I found this both as an auditor and as the PC, but I can't speak for examiners. Now, in retrospect, I am ashamed to admit such a breach of integrity. 
Do you think such collusion was commonplace? Okay, Michael, some Scientology terminology there with some definitions in there, so I hope people who heard that question understand the basic gist of it. Model session is a, an, an issue that Hubbard put out that had a very exact, here's what you say, here's the sequence of actions that occur in every single or almost every single auditing session ever delivered in Scientology, right? Like you walk into the room, PC sits at the desk, the auditor sits at his side, the meter setup is done, there are a couple little things that always get done with the e-meter to set it up. You got the table set up and everything. You make sure the PC's comfortable in his chair. You ask him if he's comfortable. You ask him if he's hungry. You ask him if he's tired. If he is, then you can't do the session. You got to handle those things. Then you put him on the meter and you do little checks, like you have him take a deep breath, hold it for just a second, and let it out through his mouth. And you look at the needle, and it should fall, indicating, according to L. Ron Hubbard, that the body has enough energy in it to do a session. No, no such thing, but that's what Hubbard translated that to mean. Um, and then you start the session, and you start it by saying, is there any reason not to start, not to begin the session? Good. This is the session. You always say it that way. This is the session. And then you uh, do the process, right? You do Well, first you do a, a thing, something called the rudiments, and then you do the main body of the session. And then when it looks like it's time to wrap up, you say, well, it looks like we're going to be ending session shortly. Is there anything you'd care to say or ask before I end the session? Write down whatever the guy says, and then you say, end of session. And you make sure he really gets it, right? And then the session's over, and you take the preclear to an examiner, a separate person with, his, with a meter, in a, usually sitting in a room, and the PC goes in there, and he sits down and picks up the cans, and the examiner just looks at him, takes down anything he wants to say about the session he just had, and makes sure that the e-meter has a floating needle on it, okay? And that whole thing that I just described to you is the basic pattern of every single auditing session ever delivered in Scientology. The variation comes in as to what the processes consist of, the main body of the session, and how the PC responds to what is being done to him in the auditing session. Those are the variable factors. So, and, those, and there's hundreds and thousands of variables in those factors, okay? There's lots and lots of different kinds of auditing, lots of different processes that run on people, and people from all different walks of life respond to auditing in different ways. They're supposed to respond in a uniform way, though, and that's what model session is all about, is making every session the same, and the theory of this, according to Hubbard, was that it would make it duplicatable so that people wouldn't be hung up on any variations or, or quirks of any individual auditors who might start a session, let's say, by saying, um, instead of this is the session, they say start of session or, you know, let's do a session or, okay, now the session started, right? They, you get these variable ways that you could accomplish the same thing, but Hubbard wanted it uniform one to the next because he said that made the session run itself out. So there wasn't any unnecessary attention or stress or trauma created by the session itself. That's the theory of the thing, okay? Uh, okay, so that all being said, you asked, you know, that during this, that there was sometimes an effort on your part as an auditor or PC, Mike, to 
fit what was happening into this model session and make it look like everything ran according to plan, even if it didn't. And that happens all the time. Because let's face it, Scientology, technology, the auditing that is done in Scientology, it's a sham. It's not doing what it says it's doing. It's doing something else. It is doing something, but it's not doing what it says it's doing, which means that everything that's happening in a Scientology auditing session is a misrepresentation of reality. You don't have a reactive mind. You don't have body thetans. There, you know, these things that are addressed in auditing are addressing things that only have dim or somewhat, you know, realistic connections with actual life and living and the actual reasons why we have problems and stress and trauma in the first place. So when you're addressing fantasies, made up reasons for things, then you can't help but be living in a little bit of a fantasy land there, right? There's some delusion going on. And so as a result of that, this nice little system that Hubbard set up, which should work like dominoes, bang, 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 and, you know, it all works wonderfully. Well, it doesn't work that way. And so people sometimes have to fake it until they fake making it. <laughs> that was really the deal. And so, Mike, you mentioned, you know, being ashamed of the fact that you had to conspire in some sometimes nonverbal way. Sometimes you and the PC just kind of look at each other and go, all right, cool. And you kind of glance at the meter and go, oh, yeah, I know your needle's floating. It's all good, right? Even though the needle's not really floating. And the guy doesn't really look that happy. Uh, but he wants to get through the session. He's got things to do. You want to get through the session. You don't want to be here for another six hours beating on this guy to try to make him conform in some way to Hubbard's processes and make the process work. See, that's really the thing, is you're trying to prove Scientology's working when it's actually not working. And you feel like, as a cult member, you have to make it work because this stuff is supposed to work all the time. So you got to make yourself make sense of it. And sometimes this leads to PCs and auditors openly or not so openly conspiring to make it look like the session went the way it was supposed to. Okay, and this happens all the time in Scientology. I heard about it. I did it on both ends. And, I, and I've watched other people and heard other people talk about it, which is why I talk about this with such certainty. So that's what I've seen. And I have seen... Um, I have seen examiners fake it on the floating needle thing too, right? That happens also. So I've seen every, at every stage of this, I've seen people, you know, blow it or fake it or, or mess it, you know, or, or like you mentioned, conspire. And, uh, and I, I don't think it's that, uh, rare, uh, for that to happen. But but here's the little sneaky thing. In case any of you guys are watching this and you're thinking, yeah, but wouldn't that show that it's all fake and wouldn't the walls come tumbling down and wouldn't they see? Guys, <laughs> okay. <laughs> they are doing all of that because they actually secretly think there's probably something wrong with them, not the system. And they're trying to be a good auditor or a good PC, good pre-clear, right? And they want to fit in. They want to mold themselves to become part of this system and get the gains that the system promises. 
and they don't see all of this as a fantasy. They don't see all of this as a bubble world, and so they don't think to question you know, what's going on around them as the problem. They look into themselves as the problem. They are the problem as far as they're concerned. Both auditor and preclear in these circumstances. And that's why they feel justified or rationalized having to fit themselves, their round pegness, into a square hole of Scientology. And they feel like the square hole is the right thing and they should be square and they're not but they got to fake it until they make it. So that's, that's, the, that's the mindset there as to why people would go through something like that. And, you know, and if you think about it, that's not just in Scientology that people do that. It's trying to fit in. It's trying to conform. It's trying to be a good social member of this social reality that you find yourself in. And at the end of the day, that's really what it's all about. And that's what we all do. So there you go. Ferdinand Reese. Have you ever talked about militant veganism online? Have you heard of the documentary What the Health on Netflix? I asked because at one point I was converted to veganism because vegan doctors such as Michael Greger, John McDougall, and Colin Campbell were preaching online the dangers of meat consumption and made many promises of weight loss and improved health by cutting out all animal products. I posted my story on Abby Sharp's video on what the health, but just to give an overview, I adopted a healthy vegan diet and within two months, my digestive health deteriorated. I lost muscle mass and I nearly passed out at the grocery store. My doctor told me that everyone is different and that while some people do well without animal protein, others cannot. I eventually regained my health after introducing meat back into my diet, but the recovery was very slow. I started watching your videos, which have helped me think critically about diet and health in general. I hadn't posted much in public about my brush with veganism until What the Health came out. And it angered me that the filmmakers were using graphic and grotesque imagery to illustrate their claims about the supposed dangers of meat consumption. Moreover, they claim that doctors profit from the ill health of a public that consumes meat. I suppose my question to you is, would the actions of the filmmakers and plant-based doctors amount to coercive persuasion and thought reform, in your opinion? Furthermore, what advice will you give to anyone who is thinking of radically changing their diet? All right, militant online veganism. Woo! Okay, so yeah, sure, of course there's cultic aspects to this, as there are in any social movement or group. You will find people on the extreme ends who are pushing must, 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 must do this, must comply, must, you know, follow all the rules that we are telling you because we know what's best. Well, when it comes to diet, you, I don't trust anybody anymore because in my lifetime, Milk has gone from good to bad to good. Sugar has gone from bad to maybe not so bad to really horribly bad to great for you to bad. And meat has gone from, you know, American meat and potatoes, uh, burgers and, you know, dogs to how dare you eat meat raw and to raw meat diet. I mean, we even had that in the Sea Org for a while and I'm sure that that was all around in the world is all the rage. That, I think that was in the 90s, uh, to don't you dare eat any meat at all. How could you? You are the most immoral scumbag of the universe, and I cannot even believe that I am talking to you because you are such a scumbag for killing all those animals. Well, you know, okay. Uh, we are at the top of the food chain for a reason, and we eat meat, 
And I, for one, am a complete metasaurus. And I'm not even pretending to be unbiased on this particular question. I believe that the human diet uh, has successfully survived with meat for thousands of years. And any Johnny-come-lately who comes along now and tells you that human beings don't need meat, shouldn't have eaten meat all these centuries, etc., is like, come on, dude. You just like give it up. If you want to push a moral position, make it a moral argument. Don't pretend that it's a health issue or a diet issue because it's not. Like your doctor said, every single person is different and they must deal with those differences on their own. They have to find out for themselves what's best for them. There is no ideal body. There is no stereotypical ideal image for a human being. We come in all shapes, all sizes, all colors. And these stereotype images that we, that we hold up and put on dioceses and say that this is what we must worship, whether it's fat or thin, tall or, or, or short, uh, black or white or red or yellow or blue or green or whatever, these are just ideas people have. There's no truth. There's no objective ultimate truth to any of these ideas. They're just social realities we come up with and we see if we can get other people to agree with us. And if they do, then we're sure we're right. And, and that's how we think. And that's how this stuff works, you know? And, and it's, it's, it's pretty ridiculous. And I say all of this because I've dived into the science on this stuff and I'm not putting myself out there as some dietary expert, just the opposite. I think there are very few dietary experts out there very few and far between, but there are thousands and thousands of people out there who will try to convince you that they know everything there is to know about a diet because they read some articles on the internet or even went to school for a couple of years and learned some things that some teachers pushed down their throats. Great. Maybe some of that's true. Maybe some of it's not. But given the fact that, like I said, in my lifetime, I have watched dietary restrictions, dietary guidelines, FDA requirements, um, dietary recommendations coming out of the White House change over and over and over again. And what that tells me is that there is very little settled science on what an ideal human diet is. There have been a thousand, thousand attempts at trying to find out. But the problem is that because we're all different, there is no one standard ideal diet for all of us that is universally workable. There isn't. And, it, and that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough call. It's a bummer. I wish it were different. It would be nice if there was some ideal diet we could all glom onto, but there isn't. So there is no right and wrong about this is what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to, you know, tell everybody how wrong you all are. I'm trying to tell you that for you, you might be 100% right. You're 100% on course. Your vegan diet is exactly what you need. But quit pretending that's what everybody else needs because it's not. Any more than me telling you as a vegan, you should eat meat. I don't know you. I don't know anything about your body. So how am I going to sit here and tell you what you should or shouldn't eat or consume, right, for your dietary needs, for your nutritional needs? I can't tell you anything about that. You got to find out for yourself. 
And that takes experimentation, that takes trying, that takes consult consultation with not just one doctor. You should, you know, you should find out all kinds of things. Uh, if, you, if this is really of something of concern to you. There's a lot to know, a lot to learn about bodies. There is not one doctor anywhere in this world that has it all figured out. There's no nutritionist that has it all figured out. Anywhere. You know, you see a lot of biases, a lot of opinions flying around, very little actual science. And I don't mean big words. There's tons of big words and chemical words and Latin words and all kinds of words you can throw around without having a scientifically credible idea in the middle of any of it. So this is this, this is the sort of thing that actually does take some work on all of our parts to figure out. Or not. We just kind of go on cruise control and we eat our McDonald's and we go to Denny's and we go to Applebee's and we go to here and we go to there and we try to do the best we can and, you know, whatever. And we, and we have to experiment with it a little bit and figure it out. Uh, and maybe we're going to be willing to do that and maybe we're not. But I'm going to tell you that from my point of view, as, uh, as all the research I've done on this, anyone telling me what I have to eat or not eat based on their morality or their idea of what is a healthy diet. You know, I, I take that uh, along with their idea, their opinions about the weather. You know, it means about that much to me. So that's my take on that. And I am sure I'm going to hear about all kinds of disagreements on it in the comments. And that's totally fine. That kind of proves my point. You know, we've all found different solutions and ideas and, and dietary guidelines and restrictions for ourselves. The mistake we make is thinking that because we found that for ourselves, we now need to project that onto everybody else. We really don't. And all of the heated, really passionate name calling and all that stuff that can ensue as a result of this just tells me how when, when that happens on the part of anybody on any level of any position, Okay, now I know I got somebody who's a little unhinged on my hands, right? They've, they've gone a bit too deep into this. And you lose the perspective. And, and when you lose that, you kind of lost everything. So that's why I preach maybe back off and just kind of let everybody kind of do their thing. Okay, so there you go. It is time for Flash Answers. Tyler Simmons, I know Hubbard hated Christianity, but what would he have to say about Islam? I'm curious if LRH's hatred of organized religion would also apply to Islam. I'm pretty sure it would. Hubbard was really down on organized religion as a control operation, and when it comes at least to extreme or militant versions of Christianity or Islam especially, but Hubbard, was, Hubbard applied it across the boards. He said the whole Catholic Church, for example, and uh, you know, I, I tend to agree in many ways uh, with that, that organized religion has been not so wonderful for us. Um, but I've made my views on that very, very clear. And, and at the same time, I, I'm all about tolerance of belief. So, you know, don't, don't go uh, hating on me quite yet. Um, but as far as Hubbard goes, yeah, I don't think he would have been down with Islam any more than he was down with Christianity. Be Dazzle. Will Smith and his wife Jada have long been accused of being Scientologists, but despite donating tons of money to Scientology-related causes, have always denied the claim and say something like, we respect Scientology teachings, but we are not Scientologists. However, in a recent YouTube video celebrating his son Jaden's 21st birthday, Will Smith said people were trying to invalidate his experience, a phrase used only by Scientologists. 
Despite the use of this weird Scientologese, the Smiths' official line still is, we respect Scientology, but we respect all faiths. We are not Scientologists, blah, blah, blah. Do you think the decision to publicly deny their affiliation to Scientology is in is the Smiths' choice because they know their church's brand is certifiably toxic, or a decision from the church because they know that celebrities having Scientology-related public outbursts, like Tom Cruise had in the 2000s, would hurt their already ruined brand even more? Or do you think perhaps the Smiths aren't affiliated with church Scientology, but maybe independent Scientologists or Scientology-inspired NOI members? Okay, I don't think that Will or Jada Smith are Scientologists at all. I don't think they have any affiliation with Scientology, and I don't think that they're trying to hide anything. Um, Will Smith had a passing experience with Scientology, I think via Tom Cruise, as did Jada. I think Jada hung with it longer than Will did. They opened a Scientology school, which used L. Ron Hubbard's study technology, but not really a whole lot else. And so from what's crossed my path on the Smiths and Scientology, it's not, it's kind of a big nothing burger. I don't think there's really a whole lot there. Will Smith is a seeker. He's a guy who's been looking around for truths and, and things to help him in his life from all different sources. But Will Smith and Jada Smith have said and done things that Scientologists absolutely will not say or do. And uh, they have done that many times, including saying they are not Scientologists. Scientologists don't deny that they're Scientologists. Those two things don't ever go together. Scientology celebrities will sometimes hide that they are Scientologists, but that's different from lying about it. There's a very big, huge chasm between those two things. A celebrity will come in through the back door, they will not be in the Scientology magazines, they will not talk about Scientology in the media, but they can still be practicing Scientologists. You cannot, as a Scientologist, read Keeping Scientology Working and then deny you're a Scientologist and think that you're a Scientologist. It doesn't, those two things don't go together. So when they say they are not Scientologists, I believe them. And that's what I can say about that. Evil Dolly. I get that people who get to OT3 are totally brainwashed, so they accept the crap. But this is the very beginning of the course. Be honest, how many people just told you to go fuck yourself and left? In all the years that I was in Scientology, not one person ever told me to go fuck myself and just left. Um, I'm not totally sure if you're asking about people at OT3 or people at the beginning, but I will tell you that there are plenty of people who come into to a church of Scientology, look around, and leave. Or sit down, do the OCA test, the personality test, get their results, and then go, this ain't for me, and they leave. Plenty of people do that. Uh, the Scientology mind control isn't something that works on everyone, you know, who comes in. And uh, in fact, most people come in, look at what's going on and go, yeah, no, I don't like this, this isn't for me, and they leave. Especially now. Uh, way, way more so now than ever before. So that's, I don't know, that's what I can say on that. Okay, guys, so I hope you guys have a very happy holidays. Like I said, I think you'll be seeing another video from me this week if all goes well and according to plan. Uh, but regardless, um, joy to the world, happy holidays, merry Kwanzaa, joyous uh, Hanukkah, and etc., etc. And I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.